0: Podcasts available after that. Uh, and the question we're asking today is Donald Trump and his movement constitute, does Donald Trump and his movement constitute fascism? Is this a legitimate and actual fascist movement in the United States? And what are the antecedents and what are the possibilities and what are the uh, consequences of that? And we have a guest today to discuss that, uh, Andrew Basevich. Hi. Andrew Bacevich is a Tom, this uh, article he wrote that we're going to discuss is uh, on uh, Tom Dispatch. It's a recent uh, issue of Tom Dispatch, a wonderful website if you're not used to it, Uh, if you haven't uh, gone to it before, Tom Dispatch, T-O-M-D-I-S-P-A-T-C-H, TomDispatch.com, and he he is a professor, Andrew Bacevich uh, is a professor emeritus of history and international relations at Boston University. He's got a new book coming out in April. Um, it's called America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book?
1: Oh, I'll be glad to. The book tells the story of U.S. military involvement in the Islamic world since 1980. So 1980 is the start point of my book because 1980 was when Jimmy Carter promulgated the Carter Doctrine. and And some of your listeners will remember that uh, that declared the Persian Gulf a vital U.S. national security interest, a place we'd uh, be willing to fight for. Uh, and I believe that, uh, unknowingly, uh, Carter thereby set in process a militarization of U.S. policy toward the Islamic world that found expression uh, in what has now become a whole host of military interventions large and small across large parts of the Islamic world and my argument is that rather than seeing those in interventions as separate independent uh, episodes uh intervening in Lebanon in Libya in Iraq in Afghanistan uh etc that we really should see them as part of a larger uh historical episode that der- deserves to be called America's war for the greater Middle East. So I'm trying to tell the story mm-hmm. of that war, even though that war certainly, as of this moment, uh, continues and with no end in sight.
0: Well, it seems like it's been, <clears throat> it's been going on continuously, as you mentioned, for uh, you know, close to 40 years now. And obviously there is no end in sight. Um, and also we're going to have to deal with whoever the new president is and what their attitude or... Is towards uh, the Middle East and we're continuing this war, or how they approach war. I mean, now you uh, recently wrote an article in the Times Dispatch called Don't Cry For Me, America, what Trumpism, Trumpism, like McCarthyism, I guess, means for democracy. And um, uh, is, first of all, it's, now you've turned it into an, and other people have done this too, but now it's an ism, like McCarthyism, right? Uh, how does that, how does it qualify for an ism?
1: Well, I mean, some people might say it doesn't qualify for an ism. I mean, what, what was McCarthyism? I mean, McCarthy himself uh, was an opportunist, uh, I think uh, an incoherent thinker, uh, somebody who relied on um, provocative, seemingly extreme statements, uh, rabble-rousing uh, to uh, to create an appeal and support for... For himself, primarily, but for whatever larger program he represented, I think there's a comparison with Trump. I don't, I don't, I, I, I do not see uh, Trump as somehow representing any kind of uh, coherent ideological point of view. You mentioned uh, in your lead-in, uh, you you used the term fascism. I, I don't think I don't think that uh, Trump qualifies as a fascist because uh, fascism uh... for all of its uh... evil did in fact constitute uh... however warped mm-hmm. uh... a a a world a, a a set of beliefs uh... and and that's not what trump is all about so i think i i i compared him to a latin american cadillo uh... Not an expert in latin american history but it seems to me that the that the history of of strong men who've come and gone in latin america uh is is one of men and they've almost all been men mm-hmm. uh who uh who advertise themselves as strong leaders who purport to represent uh the common man and the and and the common woman uh but who in fact represent almost nothing other than their their own uh opportunistic ambitions
0: and yet, somehow, they can always count on uh, thousands, if not millions, of people to rally behind them. Uh, this is what this has happened before, and the reason I bring up fascism is that there are many similar um, sociological, demographic, economic, whatever problems that confronted Germany in the late twenties and thirties, and. Um, you had the same kind of but here again, as you mentioned, you had Hitler at least, <laughs> and it 's the same thing you said. it sounds so bizarre to say, but he wrote a book, he had a plan, he had a coherent uh, a coherent uh, way into the future, a structure, people that things that he wanted to accomplish god God help us, but trump doesn 't seem that way and um, but it 's amazing how well it shouldn 't be so amazing if you read history. What you mention in Latin America, Juan Perón in Argentina and um, other people like that, strong men, um, they always seem to have, uh, maybe this is because of the way human nature is or because of economic circumstances, they always seem to have willing volunteers to put on the uh, uniforms, willing volunteers to turn out and do whatever it is their bidding is, and they are the last people that the people in charge have any interest in, but they don't seem to know that. Well, I mean, I don't... These
1: uh, opportunistic leaders Mm. or or claimants uh, to leadership like Trump uh, are, are not without a certain instinctive shrewdness in their ability to Read the political situation. And, I mean, others have said this. It's not like this is some kind of original thought with me, but Trump's anti-establishment posturing, he himself is part of the the oligarchy. Sure. But but his anti-establishment posturing resonates with a very substantial number of Americans who believe that they're being screwed. By the the existing system, and they're I don't right. For a second, I don't for a second think that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is in any way uh, similar to somebody like Trump. But there too, the the Sanders message, to the extent that it resonates, I, I, resonates because he is speaking to the uh, the concerns uh, of a, of people. Who believe that the system uh, is is not set up to address their their needs, and quite frankly, the people who make these complaints mm-hmm. are not wrong. No, they're wrong. Uh, right, of course. the the The, the, the sad part, uh, many sad parts of this, I guess, but one one sad part is that the the so called establishment. And certainly, that would include candidates in my mind, candidates like, like Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. uh, on, on the Democrats, and Marco Rubio would be a good example on the, on the Republican side. Are, are in their way, I think, just as cynical, and just as opportunistic uh, as people like Trump, who certainly deserve our, deserve our, our contempt. Uh, so one one does get to the point where the our, our politics just seems to have become so uh, robbed of of, of substance mm. that uh, in a sense I can despair I can understand the despair of, of the people who who wrongly stupidly uh, see someone like Trump as a leader uh, I can certainly sympathize with the with those on the left who respond to bernie sanders's call for a socialist revolution even though i don't believe that very many of them actually have the foggiest idea of what a socialist revolution would look like
0: um, well as you point out somebody like i mean trump for all his faults if he points out that hillary clinton is part of the wall street establishment of course he's completely right and so people ignore the fact that he is one of the uh, one of the people he's talking about. So uh, you say in your article that if he becomes the nominee, and it's always possible, it looked more likely maybe a day ago, it seems to change all the time, uh, that he could demolish the, what you call the structural underpinnings of the Republican Party. So it's a two-part question. What, what do you think the structural underpinnings are of the Republican Party and is that so bad if he demolished it? I mean, our two-party system has become the lesser of two evils. Oh, I'm point, not. You know.
1: I, I mean, I, I, in, if you take the long view, it, it may not be bad. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I agree with uh, what I think you were were, were just saying that the, that the two-party system is itself a a, a partnership in corruption. Uh, and and wouldn't it be nice uh, if Americans could go to the voting booth and be able to choose between two contrasting and yet principled expressions of, of politics, a, a genuine liberalism, a genuine uh, conservatism. That's not the choice we have. And, and perhaps it will require something like the collapse of the Republican Party to begin to move toward a system uh, that, that would offer principled, choices. But in the interim, it's going to be a hell of a mess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and in the interim, uh, we open the door to to demagogues. Uh, I mean, you just mentioned that in this ever-changing race over the last 48 hours, you might say, well, gosh, maybe uh, some of the air is starting to seep out of the Trump balloon. Uh, But to the advantage of whom? Uh, And the answer seems to be Ted Cruz, Mm -hmm. uh, who, for my money, is, uh, if not quite as much of an opportunistic demagogue as Trump, uh, is not one heck of a lot better. Uh, so, so the collapse of the, of the two-party system in the near term uh, is likely to, uh, I think it's likely to produce great, great, great damage. But uh, as you suggest, maybe that's the price we have to pay to try to uh, get to a political system that uh, somehow... Uh, is connected to real
0: principles. Well, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you don't get creation until destruction comes first, but it'll be an awful thing to go through, almost like a birth, uh, and it's a painful thing for everybody. Um, You mentioned uh, you compare uh, uh, Trump uh, to Martin um, Shkreli of, um, I forget the name of his company, but the, the large pharmaceutical company, uh, and I think people are familiar with his uh, behavior. And you, see, you use a phrase called smirking cynicism. It's a sign of our times. What do you mean by that? Well,
1: I, 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 I've been struck by uh, the pharma guy uh, mm-hmm. who, when he appears before in any kind of a public arena, and this, remember when he testified before the Congress about uh, whatever it was, three or four uh, weeks ago, mm-hmm uh that he, here he here is he is being uh questioned about serious matters with very serious charges being put against him uh and he treated the entire thing as a, as as a joke. Uh and I'm I am struck by some of the similarities when you uh evaluate the style of of Donald Trump uh on the debate stage or at his famous uh Rallies where he's tossing uh, insults uh, left and and right. He smirks like it's a big joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there is there is and, and quite frankly, one one not that I have managed to get through a single one of the televised debates. Right. I may usually make it through about thirty minutes. But you see that same smirking cynicism on the part of of media figures who are who are playing a gotcha game who who ask questions that seemingly are as much about themselves uh, ab- about posturing uh, than than about trying to elicit information that might actually be useful to a potential voter trying to figure out uh, you know who to support in a presidential election so there so this mood of of smirking cynicism uh, at, at least to my mind uh, is is it's quite prominent in our politics today.
0: <clears throat> it seems like it's almost inevitable um, that uh, and it's interesting, of course, that Trump and um, and the, the press that you're mentioning, you know, the print, uh, basically the, um, the, you know, the TV people, especially Fox News and other people, um, they come out of the entertainment and celebrity, entertainment and celebrity world. I mean, he's uh, it's a celebrity culture. And well, uh, no,
1: but there's no, there's no, there's no boundary between these worlds anymore. I mean, the the, the borders have smudged. People move, people move back and forth. Uh, they have they have a foot in both camps,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and and I do think that that uh, contributes to the transformation of our politics into an extension of the entertainment uh, industry. Uh, and it, it I, I guess, American politics has always been has always been colorful. Uh, ca- campaigns have always had an aspect in which candidates tried to entertain or amuse uh, uh, potential voters in order to attract attention, but today it's gone to extremes.
0: Mm. I think. Well, even when you look at the um, uh, look at the conventions, mostly they've been. Um, Theatrical productions sponsored by large corporations so it 's sure. all
1: yep you know yep.
0: it 's all head together, that sure. and you say also that celebrity confers authority
1: well, I mean i think i mean who who, who how could you possibly imagine that a real estate tycoon uh, <laughs> who had a reality TV show in offering himself as a presidential candidate would be treated as a uh, that, that, that in and of itself would be treated as a serious uh, proposition, and yet uh, there, there is a genius, uh, I think, about Trump that uh, he uh, recognized uh, that there are ways to convert uh, celebrity status into political standing, mm-hmm. and, and that's what he has done with uh, considerable success.
0: Uh, he calls well. It's yeah. He calls his followers fans, and that all makes sense. Um, <laughs> it does. Yeah. Uh, the the press and uh, the Republican Party uh, and the system. It's the cult, whole cultural system of self seems to have uh, created Trump. Um, but it's not just the right. I mean, when you if you watch something like CNN, uh, network news, or even MSNBC, which is you know, to, I can't say they're leftist, but they're certainly like democratically oriented or some, somewhat liberal. They they all participate, and even the, the presidential debates, you have one, you know, what is the state of the world and what is your solution? You have one minute, and then you have 30 seconds to answer it, you know, and they're always interrupting each other. And uh, here's a serious question. Uh, how would you, uh, you know, convert, uh, you know, the uh, the American economy so that people finally had jobs? What is your plan? You have 30 seconds. You know, I mean, it, you know.
1: I, I, I'm with you. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's a soundbite world, and 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 it's a soundbite world. Uh, not not because that responds to the needs of the American people to make decisions about who to vote for. It's a soundbite world because that responds to the needs of the uh, the TV networks. Uh, this is what works for them uh, as an approach that uh, generates uh, higher ratings. I, I mean, I can't cite chapter and verse here for you, but my general impression is that. The, the televised debates, particularly the Republican televised debates, have been an absolute boon oh, to yeah. the television networks that have, have sponsored them. I mean, they're making money hand over fist. They're, 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 they have impressive ratings. As you say, you know, the day after the debate, uh, then in particular, the, the TV, uh, the news networks, then spend the next 24 hours uh, parsing the significance. Of, of what was said during the course of the debate so um, there's a lot of people making a lot of money uh, it's just not clear that that's contributing to the civic education of the American people
0: well no I don't think so what would you say was the last substantial or uh, intelligent uh, rep- uh, presidential debate between two people who had different points of view and, and spelled them out in an intelligent way oh,
1: Gosh, I, I don't know you know I'd, I'd have to go back and sort of look at the videotape of,
0: of, of, uh, maybe you know, Kennedy I and mean. Nixon I don't know
1: well it might have been that it might have been I don't know it might have been uh, you know Reagan Mondale but uh, mm-hmm. it's been a while
0: um, and you say Ted Cruz taps into the same vein of pissed off you know nativism in America um and what you say is they both agree on domestic policy and foreign policy. And as far as domestic policy, what is their, what is their general agreement about domestic policy? Where, what's wrong, and how do you fix it?
1: Well, real Americans are getting screwed. Uh, and, uh, and, and therefore, we've got to make sure that uh, people who aren't real Americans uh, are, are not able to pick our pockets. Uh, and, and and therefore uh, keep immigrants out, uh, e- re- eject the immigrants, illegal immigrants that are that are here, uh, and and uh, cut a better deal uh, business wise with uh, foreign countries that are uh, reputedly uh, getting the get, getting getting the better part of the deal, notably China.
0: And and you say really that the two of them agree that everything that's wrong in America now is all Obama's fault, right?
1: Yes, I mean, and, and, and well, this is the this is the, the general Republican uh, point of view. It's it's really extraordinary that uh, to listen to Republicans discuss politics, uh, nothing happened uh, before uh, January two thousand and nine when Obama took office. And everything that has happened since January 2009 has been a total catastrophe. So, so you know, George W. Bush is, uh, it's almost like the old Soviet Union where, uh, the Stalin would order that, uh, people be, their photographic images be erased from, from pictures when they fell out of favor. George, the George W. Bush administration, with all the catastrophes that it created, somehow, doesn't exist as far as the Republican Party uh, is concerned. It's really quite bizarre.
0: And, and as far as the Mexi- as far as foreign policy, the two of them agree too. Uh, and you point out, you know, that Russia is threatening, especially and also Europe, but also in Syria, uh, they're involved. And North Korea, China, ISIS, Iran, and I don't. Well, I mean, I
1: don't think either uh, uh, Trump or Cruz has a. a, a a seriously thought-out perspective on foreign policy. Right. Both, however, uh, indulge in this militaristic, bellicose, chest-beating, uh, uh, you know, bomb them until the sand glows, mm-hmm. uh, torture the terrorists and their families, uh, that, um, that, appe- that does appeal uh, to, sadly, does appeal to a, a portion of the American uh, electorate that, that thinks that by simply throwing our weight around in the world uh, that we're going to be making things better. I, that's not my view, uh, but on the right, uh, that view has some amount of appeal.
0: Um, well, Hillary Clinton seems to have some um, predilection in that direction herself. No I doubt was. about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. My last question, and you're listening to Andrew Bacevich, who is um, talking about an article he wrote on Tom Dispatch. He's a professor emeritus of history and international relations at Boston University. And look for his book that's coming out in April called America's War for the Greater Middle East, a Military History. Last, you say, if Trump is elected, our constitutional our constitutional democracy is if not actually in peril but maybe uh, doomed if he 's actually elected. Um, it seems to me though that he his wrecking his possible wrecking of our constitutional democracy, which I believe probably would happen, has been coming for a long time it 's been decaying for decades uh, you know for various reasons
1: well i think I think that 's absolutely uh true. In, 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 in many respects, it is the, um, it is the vulgarity, uh, the undisguised sort of contempt for uh, the system that is at the heart of Trump's candidacy that highlights, you know, brings to the forefront uh, the decay of our democracy, that, as you suggested, has been ongoing for quite some time he 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 really he, he, he lets us see quite clearly uh, how far down the road to perdition we have already uh, advanced
0: mm. well um, i mean it's uh, maybe it 's useless to make predictions, but uh, I suppose it 's based on hope that you always hope that even In the Republican Party, the the higher-ups are criticizing him and his fans are reacting angrily to that. That, in the end, that there's still enough functionality in the American democratic system where voters will, uh, if they have a choice between Trump and Clinton, lesser of two evils in my opinion, will exercise their right and reject his movement. But um, we'll wait to see what happens.
1: We'll wait to see.
0: Andrew Bacevich. And uh, if you want to check his article out, it's called on Tom Dispatch. It's called Don't Cry for Me, America, What Trumpism Means for Democracy. And Bacevich is spelled B-A-C-E-V-I-C-H again on Tom Dispatch. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us this morning.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Oh, 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 That's the
0: Hi, this is Mike Vader again, and um, we have with us um, Dr. Adam Gaffney, who is a member of and spokesperson for Physicians for a National Health Program, PNHP. Uh, What's the website, Dr. Gaffney?
3: The website for PNHP, it is Mm PNHP.org.
0: Okay, and uh, he's a research fellow in pulmonary and critical care medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, and um, he got his medical degree from uh, New York University School of Medicine and completed residency training at Columbia University Medical Center, where he served as chief resident. He is a frequent writer on health policy, blogging at theprogressivephysician.net, theprogressivephysician.net, and publishing in USA Today, Salon, In These Times, Truthout, and other places. Uh, one of the things that Bernie Sanders is talking about one of his, uh, you, you know, larger issues and something that he hopes, uh, will appeal to enough voters, um, is the single payer Medicare for all issue. Um, now this is not new, of course, it goes all the way back to some of FD, FDR's people and, uh, later on Medicare, uh, you know, in the Johnson era and, uh, for, for, in some ways Johnson was a product of the new deal. Um, Now, Sanders gets criticized by a lot of people, um, some of them uh, Democrats, some of them, uh, you know, middle of the road people, obviously a lot of Republicans. Uh, And they say, well, how on earth do you expect to pay? You know, I mean, this is going to cost trillions of dollars, they say. How do how do Americans pay for such a huge, costly program?
3: So that is a very – that is the million-dollar or trillion-dollar question right now, and that's, I think, what's getting most of the discussion uh, in the media right now. Um, And it's something that I think is a critical issue because it's really been used to uh, bludgeon Sanders' Medicare for All uh, proposal, as you said. Um, Many people um, have argued that it's unaffordable. We just can't do it, whatever you think of it. Um, And you know, the, the reality is it's not true. And I think there's a couple of ways we can look at the issue. Um, one is we can use international comparisons that's sort of easy. We can say, well, if it's unaffordable, how is it that Canada does it um spends much less than we do and still has a single payer program if it's so fundamentally um, unaffordable um, but I think the other way to look at it is to ask, well, why would it cost more and why would it cost less you know mm-hmm. um, and the reality is is that they're really is good evidence, strong evidence, that a single-payer Medicare-for-all type program can produce very large savings. Um, There's a lot to sort of unpack here, but one of those is simply the issue of administrative simplicity that you see with a single-payer program um, as opposed to a fragmented multi-payer program. Second is uh, savings on drug expenditures. Um, And if you really look at the the sort of savings you can get from those two in those two ways—that's enough money to cover the new cost that a single payer program would would, would generate. Um, so I disagree with sort of a lot of the liberal comment um, commentaries that have come out recently saying it's unaffordable. It's not unaffordable. Um, other countries can do it, and so can we. So
0: it's not a question of uh, any. I mean, although there are there are types of taxes that I think most people, if they understood what they were, would approve, like you know, transaction taxes on Wall Street, uh, uh, higher taxes uh, for corporations who don't even pay them at all sometimes. Uh, so all these are tax programs which uh, which seem to be eminently attackable. But you're just starting out with. Something that doesn't even involve a tax, or even any, uh, even an American paying one extra dollar in tax—a regular American, not just, you know, rich people—or a transaction tax. Although a transaction tax would bring in tens of billions of dollars, uh, you know, Wall Street transactions, bonds, and stocks on a daily basis. But
3: um, well, uh, the one thing I just interject for one quick second. um, Sure. What what I do want to make clear is that um, um, I'm talking about overall health spending. The reality is is that um, we would need some taxes as as, as you describe um, that would but they would replace existing for they would replace existing payments on things like premiums co-payments and deductibles. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there would be, you know, um, uh some inc- new progressive taxes, um and um the reality is for the vast majority of Americans, uh that, that what they would be paying in taxes would be equal to or less than what they were previously paying in premiums, uh and co-payments and deductibles. So, so I think the, and, and that aspect often gets left out of the discussion. Um, it you know, it's if you're replacing an existing payment you're already making with a tax and your overall health care spending is either the same or lower than it was previously, hmm. you know, that's, that's what we're talking about, really.
0: So um, let's, let's take an example of uh, something you said in just uh, sort of one of the initial savings, uh, administrative costs. Right now, and I can only, you know, vaguely estimate what this would be, maybe there's a million people. If you take every doctor's office and every hospital staff and uh, every clinic staff and all the people that work at all the different health insurance companies, and most of these people are just regular people trying to get by with regular jobs, and there are probably hundreds of thousands of them, maybe there's a million of them. What happens to all these people uh, who are not really quite necessary anymore if there is less of an administrative uh, staff required and costs?
3: So I think that's a very fair question and it's a and, and, and it's a real issue with with the Medicare for all program um, just to reiterate, as you said, um, we're talking about replacing the private insurance the health the, the private health insurance industry for the most part right um, and so um uh, those um, a lot there are a lot of workers there as you described and obviously those people need to, 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 to be able to provide for themselves and can't just be you know abandoned so you know, there are many details that would need to be worked out as we got closer to, tr- to translating a proposal into a bill one thing that I would support and that a lot of the people talk about um, and that has been included in previous prof- proposals is to spend a substantial amount of money um, helping people who are displaced from their current jobs into other sorts of jobs um, perhaps um, you know uh, training to, to actually deliver medical care um, would be something that I think we're going to have an increased need for so there's a lot of different ways to attack it you're right it's an actual issue it can't just be brushed under the under the uh, table um, and um, and it's thing we're gonna have to deal with
0: well, I think it's probably going to frighten a lot of people because uh, job training, especially if people are in their 40s or 50s and are doing a certain kind of job for a long time, you know, these administrative jobs or jobs at health insurance companies. Um, they could, they have every right to be justly uh, worried unless there's a really clear detailed plan on what they're going to do and if it happens pretty quickly i mean the government if you're talking about job retraining that's another expense the government would have to spend and i'm i'm just mentioning this over and over again because it's something that i think sometimes people don't don't really make clear to people and people are justly worried about this i mean there aren't that many jobs available right now uh, or is the government just certainly suddenly going to create jobs, delivering healthcare service, retraining people? Would would they get paid the same amount of money? So it's something that I think the people who are proposing single payer uh, have to make much more uh, clear to people when they when they uh, when they you know espouse such a program. Uh, let's move on to uh, another uh, question what can people expect in terms of the quality of care they'll get as compared to what they might be getting now? Um, there are a lot of really, really good doctors um, who don't accept Medicare right now in New York city. I know where I live a lot of uh, extremely good doctors who are sort of a uh, part of out of network healthcare plans. So you can get, you know, paid back for a good portion of what you spend. Um, they have decided that they don't accept Medicare because I guess it doesn't pay them enough. So, what happens in terms of uh, how doctors practice medicine, what they expect to get paid, um, and the quality of care people will get? Because sometimes, if you go to a to an, uh, to to a Medicare doctor, and there's many many fine Medicare doctors in hospitals, you but there's a there's a a general attitude that some of the really good specialists and other people are people who don't generally focus on Medicare.
3: Yeah, I think that's a real aspect of our current healthcare system. I mean, look at um, Medicaid, for instance, just to bring that example in. Um, the number of physicians that don't accept Medicaid is even, is even more of a problem. So uh, this is the reality of our current system, right? There's different tiers of coverage. And depending upon which ones reimburse more and which ones reimburse less, some doctors are out of network. Um, one thing we've seen even with the Affordable Care Act is that um, some of the plans that you purchase in the marketplace um, you know the online exchanges have what people describe as you know quote narrow networks of doctors and physicians that might exclude major academic medical centers um, mm-hmm. so I, I agree with you that there's a problem with um some physicians not taking medicare but certainly it's a major problem with medicaid and it's also a problem with some private insurance as well so i so, so this is the situation we're in now right where uh different ins- different providers accept different insurers and it's a, and it's a mess in many ways oh yeah um so you know would that be a problem under a medicare for all program i think is what you're asking um and i think the answer is no because there would be a single program it would be very hard uh to not to not participate in such a program, obviously the program would need to reimburse sufficiently to, you know, give a reasonable salary to, to physicians and to make sure they can keep their lights on and all that. So that would need to be negotiated in a fair manner. Um, but I'm not worried about physicians not partic- participating because this would be the single payer. There would be no alternative uh, in terms of other insurers, um, and so you could expect. That basically all doctors um, and certainly hospitals and medical centers would participate. Um, so it would it would actually move us away from the sort of silos and the and the, the tiers and the the bar- the barriers and the walls that currently exist in our system towards something I think much more egalitarian that would allow um, basically everybody to, to 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 go to the doctor or the hospital they wanted to.
0: Fair answer. Um... If you just tuned in, we're listening to Dr. Adam Gaffney, and he is a member of and spokesperson for uh, physicians for a national health program, PNHP. And um, so in other countries, how does it work? How do do the populations, the citizens of other countries, pay for their single-payer insurance, insurance, places like Sweden or Germany or Canada, and I think England, too? Um, And what's the quality of care like there?
3: So um, there's no straightforward answer to that because the reality is each of those countries actually has – even though we, you know, sort of speak of European universal health care as a sort of monolithic entity, the reality is that those systems actually have significant differences. Um, and in fact, so, some of those countries don't really have what we call single payer. Uh, England, UK does, Canada does, um, but places like Switzerland, um, for instance, actually have something different that actually does use uh, private insurance. So there's a lot of differences between, between those programs. You know, I think if, um, if you look at places like Canada and, and UK, they um, there's minimum out-of-pocket payments when you need to go to the doctor. Uh, in England, they have it for prescriptions, um, I believe, but not for going to the doctor or going to the hospital. Uh, so you don't pay out of pocket. Uh, there are no insurance premiums because you don't have insurance per se, and so it's funded basically out of, uh, for the most part, out of out of general taxation, mm-hmm. you know, and progressive taxes. Um, the um, so so so. so the answer, the question about the funding mechanism again is variable. Now, in terms of quality, uh, I think there's reasons to believe that a single payer Medicare for all system would actually um resulted in improvements in quality um, the Commonwealth Fund, um, which is a health policy think tank that does a, a lot of important work um, but is not you know is not per se a single payer sort of supporting organization by any, by any means um, did a um, survey i think it was either last year or the year before comparing um, a number, uh, U.S. versus a number of nations in Europe, and, and quality, we actually, you know, basically scored towards the bottom. So, um, and uh, so there's many reasons th- to think that single-payer systems actually uh, function better in terms of, in terms of quality, mm-hmm. at least comparatively. Uh,
0: and now, I think a lot of people are really concerned with the idea, with the cost of drugs. I mean, there are, the cost of drugs in, in, for people, and, Maybe people use too many different kinds of drugs, and maybe uh, the uh, you know the, the selling of drugs now on TV and everywhere else—it's being pushed everywhere. Um, but um, drugs are astoundingly expensive in the United States, probably more here than anywhere else in the world. Um, why? Why are uh, are drugs so expensive? And how would single payer reduce the cost of drugs for everybody?
3: I think this is a critical question, and I think people are seeing this day-to-day in terms of the, what they're paying when they go to the pharmacy um, and you know um, what they're paying in copayments or coinsurance when they pick up an, 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 a new drug that they've been prescribed. Um, so we are unique in how much we pay for pharmaceuticals in the United States. Um, why is that? Well, essentially, um, if you have a patent on a medication – it basically gives you a monopoly, which is a point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that it comes with a serious downside, which is that pharmaceutical companies can more or less price their drugs at you know, what people describe as what the market will, will bear. Uh, so you get these ridiculous drug prices that are through the roof and are not necessarily based on anything. They're just the most they can get for it. Mm-hmm. So so how do we address that? Um, so one thing that's in you know the PNHP proposal and a lot of um, – uh, uh, politicians certainly support, would be direct negotiation between the government and pharmaceutical companies to get at better prices. And that's what people – that's what other countries do, and many of them spend about half as what we do on, on, on pharmaceuticals. Um, so that's a very – powerful, potent way to reduce drug costs. Um, you know, Medicare doesn't do that now. Mm. And it doesn't do that because it was explicitly prohibited from doing it uh, by a cause in the 2003 uh, Medicare Modernization Act, uh, which gave us, you know, Medicare Part D, the, the drug benefit. Uh, so we could be doing that right now with Medicare. We just... We just elected not to, uh, uh, which was, in my mind, a big gift for the pharmaceutical companies. Well, but
0: it, that's, say, basically
3: the, the, that, that's, that's basically the answer, negotiations.
0: Oh, well, uh, elected not to, I, I don't know if that's the right phrase. But, uh, you know. <laughs> Fair I don't, enough. I, know, I don't know who we elected and what they're doing. but any, So does the same thing apply to uh, really expensive tests like MRIs and, you know, the hundreds of other kinds of tests? Because they're also extremely
3: expensive. Right, and I think you know. To, w- there's two. Di- when we say something's expensive, we, we can be thinking about it in two different ways. You know, one is what you're being charged as a patient when you show up, um, and um, you know what the your copayment is. Um, and there's what the, the test actually costs. Um, but yes, I mean, certainly, um, you know, the, the government would be um, would be reimbursing providers mm-hmm. and hospitals uh, for these various. Tests and and procedures and so on, um, and so there would be um, negotiations over the prices for mm-hmm. those for for, for, for those um, interventions.
0: Uh, we only have uh, like <clears throat> two minutes left or so. But so let's say. That we did want to institute, or I mean somehow the the American you know corporations and uh, the uh, the representatives uh, of the people who are actually sometimes working for these corporations. let 's say the conditions turned out to be that uh, we uh, we a lot most people and I think most people do want uh, you know single payer what do we do? Scrap the affordable care plan or, or build on it, or how does how is that going to work and we only have like I should say like a minute and a half two minutes.
3: Um, sure. So what so how would it work? So I, I don't think we should scrap the affordable care plan until we have something to replace it. Mm-hmm. Um the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Yes, I mean, you wouldn't – the Affordable Care Act, you know, helps many people get insurance through a variety of mechanisms. Um, As you phase in a single-payer program, and there's different ways people have talked about doing it incrementally, and that's a whole other debate. But um, as you phase it in, uh, people will be insured through a single national health program insurer. And, yeah, you wouldn't have uh, Medicaid and Medicare um, and private insurance plans anymore. Be covered by one big plan for everybody, uh, one big network of doctors and, and health centers. Um, It's a big task. It's unquestionably a large project, but it's doable. Other countries have done it, Uh, and I think we can do it.
0: Okay. Um, Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Adam Gaffney, and he is a uh, member of and spokesperson for an extremely large organization of physicians in this country, and it's Physicians for a National Health Program, PNHP. And the website is, again?
3: PNHP.org.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, and this is uh, something we all hope will come to pass
3: Uh, I'm right with you on that.
0: Okay, thank you. Thanks for
3: having me. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.